um, thanks that you have all um, come here this afternoon. Um, the EU after Brexit, I think, will be a completely different beast from the beast that we all know now. Um, there will be, I guess, more cohesion uh, in the European Union and there will be new alliances across uh, the continent. They won't be easy alliances, but they will be there because there's no alternative. And I think uh, in that sense, um, let me start by saying something very provocative. I think in that sense, Brexit is a good thing for the EU because she was stuck before. I'm not sure all the Irish will agree though. <laughs> um, Brexit will completely change politics as it is conducted in a mechanical way uh, because it is, there's a lots of mechanics there um, till now. And the first inkling I got of that is about a year ago, a little over a year ago, when um, the London think tank Chatham House uh, phoned me up and they said, can you please come to London and do a briefing on um, how the Netherlands will help us out during the Brexit negotiations with Brussels. So I thought, how the Netherlands will help the UK out? I could imagine actually the question, because the Dutch, I mean, I left the Netherlands in 1994 and I never moved back, but still it's the country I know best, I guess, um, or almost best. The Dutch are very, very uh, Anglophile. We live on the continent. We are a province of Germany. We're not the only ones, of course. And at the same time, we always like to be with our backs against Germany, looking at the UK, because we love everything Atlantic and transatlantic. Um, it was, after all, the Dutch who got the UK into the European Union in 1973, and they tried three times and in the end, they, they managed to overcome uh, uh, French vetoes. From the moment the UK entered uh, the European Union, the Dutch were happy, happy as babies because they live with one leg uh, on the continent in the economic reality uh, of being a, a little state next to Germany. And we have the big German port, after all, in, in Rotterdam. Uh, on the other hand, we dream of being uh, in a, some kind of a transatlantic uh, mindset. So for the first time since uh, European integration started after the Second World War, the Dutch had both worlds um, united, in a way, with the UK in. And this was the time that everybody uh, remembers best about the Netherlands uh, in the EU. People always ask me, um, how come there's so many Eurosceptics in the Netherlands? You love Europe, don't you? We know you as very, very uh, happy about Europe. But this memory goes back only to 73, because this is when the Dutch were very happy uh, in the EU, jumping into Schengen, jumping into uh, the Euro project. Everybody um, lost their reserves because the UK was there too. So nothing bad could happen to us anymore. So I expected actually going to The Hague, um, talking to people in all kinds of ministries. I expected to get some clues about how the Dutch would be able to, you know, or wanting to at least help the British out during its nego Brexit negotiations with Brussels. I was entirely wrong. What I heard everywhere was a big, big, big no in capital letters. We're not going to help the British out. They were very strict. They said if we allow the Brits to do cherry picking, there will be a lot of people in the Netherlands and maybe other countries too that will say, hmm, look, the Brits are doing well outside the EU with all kinds of nice goodies. We want out too. So in a way, it was self-preservation, I think it is. Um, I hear also from Brussels that, that the Dutch are very, very firm. Uh, they're, they're very happy with 
Mr. Barnier negotiating with the, uh, with the UK, although the Dutch, and this is something that never changes, I guess, it, when something goes wrong in, 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 in Europe, they always blame the French. They never trust the Frenchmen, even if they smile at them, and they, if, even if they manage to agree on some issues. But no, this time they're firmly behind Barnier. Um, they are also, uh, so the first reason is no cherry picking, because this might unravel the whole thing. The, the second thing I heard is like how everybody all of a sudden, because they had been looking uh, into ways to help the UK maybe, how everybody all of a sudden realizes that everything we have, the whole structure, you know, from aviation to uh, veterinary systems to um, uh, Euratom, for instance, uh, the nuclear story, how everything is European. And this has nothing to do with ideology. This has nothing to do with, 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 with um, morale or anything. It's just op very op on an operational level. And if, for instance, the Dutch would like to help the Brits on aviation, then tomorrow maybe Poland or Germany would, you know, try to strike its own deal with the UK as well on a different field, say the veterinary field. And then within a week, this whole European uh, edifice, in a way, this very complex um, operational system uh, will fall apart and it can go very quick. Um, and there's a third thing that I heard in The Hague a year ago, is that why do you keep talking about these things? I mean, Brexit is, is done. We have to look forward. So all of a sudden, the Dutch, who were with their backs against Germany, being a province or not, looking at the UK, they are turning. They had turned already, in fact. The same Dutch who one year before, ahead of the UK referendum on Brexit, they bent over backwards to find, you know, Prime Minister Rutte, he, he, he was very close to Cameron. Cameron was very popular in the Netherlands, so he bent over backwards to find a way to compromise and so on. All that didn't work. And then it was almost with a relief, I think, that the Dutch had started to focus on what comes next. Because what does Brexit do? Uh, Pernilla already said the North will lose influence. In fact, it will lose if the, uh, when the UK uh, leaves, it will lose 12% of its voting power in Brussels, which is a lot. Um, so this will affect all the liberals in the north. As a consequence, the south will probably, whether they use it or not is a different issue, but potentially they will become stronger. And this is, of course, not what the Nordics want. In order to make up for that 12%, they will have to look for new friends and allies all over Europe. So the whole game of pushing something in Brussels or blocking something in Brussels or try to bend things in Brussels your way in terms of decision making, those games are completely changing not only for the Nordics, but also, for instance, for the non-Eurozone countries, who are always anxious to see what the Eurozone is doing, for instance, uh, concerning banks, and who are always desperate to make themselves heard, and sometimes they have, of course, legitimate worries, and they always used the UK as their big tutor to slam on the table and make even France and Germany listen. I mean, the Czech Republic on its own will never manage, or Sweden will never manage to raise their voices like that. I mean, they can raise their voices, but nobody gives a damn, probably, or not really. Um, even France and Germany will be affected. Germany very often used the UK against France. 
those etatists in, 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 in Paris. Likewise, the French often used the UK against those legalistic Germans, you know. So all of them will have to conduct their uh, political ball game, as I call it, in a different way. So what you see now is most of the governments in the EU are totally, because of Brexit, getting out of their comfort zone. They have to look for new ways of negotiating and, and, and ganging up in Brussels. You see all kinds of new groupings emerge, which maybe are not really new, but some are totally revitalized. So you have this Hanseatic group in the north, um, which now also includes Ireland. There was even talk of Belgium joining, can you imagine? There is the new uh, Middle Europa, which is the heart of Europe, which never exists till, until there is an East and a West again, which are at loggerheads or, or a little at loggerheads. And then the Middle Europa uh, emerges again to be sort of a buffer, because when the two are clashing, they lose out, of course, in the middle, which is this, uh, true for the Czech Republic, for Austria, where I just spent four years for Slovakia, Slovenia, and so on. Then there is the revival of the Benelux, which has been alive and dead uh, for most of the past decades. And for instance, the Dutch are not only actively using the, the, the Nordic group to push certain issues and to provide a counterweight to Germany. Germany is always making deals with France. Everybody knows this. This is the heart of the EU, the soul of the EU even, because it was those two who were always looking for dominance on the continent and then ending, ended up fighting and destroying everything in the middle. Um, I think the purpose of the Nordic group is very much to make sure that th those compromises between that Germany is going to make with France, we all know that's what Europe is about, but still we don't like it, you know. So the Nordic group is trying to bind the hands of Germany behind its back so that it can't go too far in those compromises. Um, at the same time, the Nordic group is not, it, it's, it's big, but not big enough. So if the, the, the Netherlands, for instance, they don't want to be pushed in this Nordic corner too much. So at the same time as you know, joining the Nordic group, they made sure to revitalize Benelux as well. So the Benelux is uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg. Belgium and Luxembourg are very almost federalist European countries, totally different from, uh, from, from the Netherlands. Um, if one day Europe goes down the drain, which I'm not sure it will actually, but if this once happens, I think Belgium and, and Luxembourg will be the last to turn off the lights. The Dutch certainly not. Um, but the Benelux now is um, meeting the Visegrad group. They're going, they're traveling together to Eastern Europe. What helps is that they're also liberal leaders, you know, the, the backslapping uh, practical kind. They like each other. But this is not, um, it's not an accident that the Dutch are revitalizing both uh, groups at the same time. Then there is Visegrad, of course, as a group. You have the South. You see sometimes Southern summits. That is interesting. There have been uh, Mediterranean, Southern European summits before. But it's only after Brexit that they get even noticed in the North. I, I remember the last time it happened, I was in Berlin, and I was a bit surprised that German officials were really discussing, like, what are Tsipras and Rajoy, and I can't remember who then was the Italian uh, prime minister, uh, what they are discussing. Because I thought, you know, it never used to matter. And all of a sudden, they appeared on the radar. So something is happening there. These groups are all operating um, with a lot of overlap, all at the same time, more than before. The British don't really like this. 
I remember at this um, at this uh, at this meeting, there were in in London there were some uh, British officials who were really um, clashing with people from other member states. They had invited all kinds of Europeans, and at one point, a Brit said to uh, one of the Europeans, he said, um, but there will be more exits, I'm sure of it. You know, you, your country is so full of Eurosceptics, there will be more. And then this guy said, well, I don't think so. Because for us, it's very easy to be extremely, to go all out, to be very Eurosceptic. If there is a big country, even more Eurosceptic than we are. But if that big Eurosceptic country leaves the European Union, we have to watch our backs. We cannot be too extreme. And I will never forget this discussion, because I think this is exactly what is going on now in several member states. Um, everybody is becoming a little bit more moderate. You see it in Eurobarometers, uh, Eurobarometer um, polls. You see that the support for the EU is rising in most member states. Not everywhere. In the east of Europe, for instance, it's going down a little. Which is maybe, we'll see where that end, ends up, but it's still higher than average, so it's not really worrisome. Um, I think in the Netherlands, the, uh, the Brexit dynamic is quite traumatic, traumatic because for, you know, suddenly people realize that what happened in the UK could happen any day in the Netherlands. You don't educate your people at all about what the EU is and what the EU does and also what it is not. When I went to school in the Netherlands, I used to get everything about transatlantic relations, about how the US and uh, Great Britain get, came to save us from the Nazis. Not a word about Europe. And this is not only the case in the Netherlands. Um, I'm told that in some Swedish schools, the word EU is not even pronounced because uh, there's still a, uh, about half of the population who were against uh, joining the EU at the time. Um, these people are um, divided over several political parties. So all parties have an interest not bringing the issue up again. So when in certain schools there are teachers who were against, whatever they are, conservatives, socialists, who refuse to treat the issue in their history class, nobody acts. Um, I wrote a story recently about a, a, a Dutch, we call it Inburgeringsboek, which is a book, like 200-something, 35 pages, I believe, that uh, people who want to become Dutch, they will have to learn it more or less by heart. And afterwards, there is this uh, exam that gets more difficult by the day. So somebody sent me this book. And it's incredible. It's about how we have this St. Nicolas uh, tradition, how the Dutch go crazy when they celebrate birthdays, our history, uh, our colonies, you know, everything. Two little paragraphs in this over 200 pages book about, you know, the international setting. The first paragraph, which you get to at about, you know, page 150, is about the transatlantic relations and everything we got uh, at school, how they came to save us and so on, and how nice that we were trading like mad with each other and we understand each other so much. Um, and then the second paragraph about the international context is at around page 200. And it says, literally, it's, it's like four lines. It says literally that we have some economic cooperation with other uh, nations in Europe, um, that uh, some of these countries are also using the same currency called the euro, and that's about it. Then they go back to the, to the birthdays or the 
Black Peter discussion that we had uh, have forever. Um, so if in the Netherlands and Sweden and Denmark and many other places, um, they think about uh, where to go from here after Brexit, um, they realize that if they continue like this, it may happen elsewhere. So what you see is in many member states, the politicians are getting a little bit more moderate. I don't know if you noticed, but they're yelling less at each other at the moment. They are also a little bit less severe on you know, Brussels being responsible for all the bad things that are happening to, to the nation, even if the ministers were there themselves co-deciding, but that they often don't mention, of course. Um, what you also see is that, for instance, um, we had a new government in the Netherlands uh, by the end of last year. All of a sudden, the new Dutch Minister of Foreign Affairs, um, he, uh, he held a lunch for all EU ambassadors, which was already something, I think. Um, and there he said that Europe was much more than a market. Somebody sent me the text, I fell off my chair. He said, Europe is much more than a market. It's a community of values. It is something that we created after the world war, after the, after the world wars, uh, plural, of course. Um, it's about plus jamais ça, never again. The fact that the Dutch Minister of Foreign Affairs evokes this kind of language when he talks about Europe, I mean, it was front page news as far as I was concerned. Uh, the fact that he says it in, fr in French was even more surprising to me. So all of a sudden you realize how lazy uh, we have been for all those years when the, uh, when the UK was on board. I used the Dutch now as an example often because maybe it's the country I know best, but it's also... The, the, the turnaround is like 180 degrees, or almost. Um, all of a sudden, the Dutch government, but also the Danish government and other governments are realizing that they themselves are responsible for the perception, or to a large extent, for the perception of Europe in their, in their countries. They can't hide uh, behind the, the back of the, uh, of the United Kingdom anymore. The Swedish Minister of European Affairs has started a project called EU Handshakes. I mean, it's maybe a bit naive, but it tells you something. It's at least an attempt, and the first attempt. She goes to schools all over the country, visits trade unions, uh, companies, and so on, and then talks about Europe. And it's a little bit uh, maybe a la Macron, I, uh, I don't really know. But the, the intention is, um, it's a handshake. So it, 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 it involves both sides. She goes there and talks and discusses it with them, but they promise to keep talking when she's gone. And then some, at some point in the summer, she started in December, all these uh, companies and, and groupings and clubs, they all come uh, to some place in Stockholm, I guess, and they present their findings or whatever they think. Again, it sounds maybe rather uh, clumsily, but it, it, it is significant because it never happened before. Nobody actually gave a damn. Um, in Denmark, it's very, very telling that ministers who used to... Um, criticize Brussels day and night, they've really tuned down their language. Um, in the non-Eurozone countries, it's actually the same thing. Um, because decision-making in Europe is always centered around France and Germany, in the end. Huh? Some say it's like the Protestant North and the Catholic South. Once they, you know, the Germans, they have all the Protestants behind them, and the French have all the Catholics behind them. Um, and once they can live with a certain compromise, they will be able, both of them, to convince the ones who, who, who are gathered around them. Um, 
There is a lot of talk about reforms in the Eurozone right now. I think uh, it's rather important that these uh, reforms are carried out. I'm not sure if they will to a large extent. We'll see. Uh, the French are aiming very high, and of course the Germans are aiming very low, because you ha always have to ask for more than you can get. This is always the... Uh, so the press is making um, big... is writing big stories now about how Germany is unwilling and so on. Wait and see. I'm not sure. Uh, they're, they're sort of positioning themselves. But since everybody knows that the heart of, of the EU is still the Eurozone, that's where the, most of the countries are that share everything, and they will, in their interest, they will move on. Um, a lot of other countries who don't have the euro are actually getting a little bit nervous, because at the same time there is talk about the multi-speed Europe or two-speed Europe. Macron this week in, uh, in his speech to the European Parliament uh, alluded to it again, saying that um, it's maybe okay that some countries don't want to move on with, with more European integration, but they should not block the ones who are willing. Um, many non-Eurozone countries are now terrified. You know, there's talk of change in, in the air, of reforms. We're talking, we have lots of security threats. So there are, um, there is talk about more integration on uh, European defense and security, foreign affairs, uh, those kinds of issues. Um, we, can, we, can, uh, we can expect lots of important issues coming up. If those are going to be decided by the Eurozone countries, the others, they are afraid to end up in the periphery. So what happens? They are moving towards the center. They, uh, for instance, Sweden tried to become a member of the, of the banking union um, just to have a little extra hook, you know, so not to drift off. It failed because the government uh, designed it very quickly and the government was for, but they didn't manage to get the parliament on board either. But they've assured me in, man, in many, um, in many uh, ways that they will probably try again soon maybe next year or the year after. The same discussion is going on in uh, Denmark. And uh, for instance, the Czech Republic, um, they are trying to get monitoring status, which is a, a different trick to, you know, to remain close to the, to the, to the center. Uh, they want monitoring status with the Eurozone. I don't know exactly what that means. I'm, I'm not sure they know it themselves. I've asked several Czechs, and I've never had a, a satisfying answer. I don't think they will get it anyway. But it also is a signal, like, um, you know, we can't keep up entirely, but we don't want to lose um, track. And it's very understandable. If the Netherlands is, a, is an economic province of Germany, I mean, the, the Czechs are even more of an economic province of Germany. Lots of uh, production, uh, industrial production, you know, the assemblage is done in Germany, the putting together of the parts, but the, the factories are in, um, in uh, the Czech Republic. So they better keep, you know, close to the Eurozone. Um, so you can say, actually, that most countries are moving towards the middle, not because all of a sudden they've fallen in love with the, with the European Union, but just out of necessity. Because if you want, and this is the trick, of course, if you want to be heard in Brussels, you can't afford to be too far off. You need friends, you need, uh, you need to compromise, you need to keep closer to each other. Um, so, the, um, I would say the polarization in Europe, and we've seen lots of that eh, over the past 10 years. We had the banking crisis, we had the euro crisis, economic crisis, refugee crisis. It was a permanent state of crisis that we lived on, and I spent most of those years in, um, in Brussels reporting about it. Uh, it drives you crazy. And the only thing you want is less of that uh, crisis. But there was, 
the polarization was, was very uh, extreme. First north-south and then east-west. My feeling is, and what I see is, that this polarization is, everybody is, after Brexit, very much aware how it can actually kill everything. They count their blessings all of a sudden. So Europe is not only getting a little bit more moderate, it also moves in a way. When you come to ministries in whichever member state, they're all full of people who understand now that there's a new ballgame going on, new political ballgame going on, and they all want to be good at it. It's like, you know, it's a bit macho sometimes. Um, they all want to win. So this, uh, it creates appetite, it creates adrenaline, it creates some kind of, I'm, I'm not trying to exaggerate, but I really see a difference. Um, it creates a new energy. Um, all of a sudden, ministers and prime ministers, but also civil servants in the ministries of transportation or the economy or, or environment, they're traveling all over Europe. Um, and I think this, it's hard to underestimate this. There are people who are telling me, for the first time I went to Bratislava and I knew my counterpart because he's always in this big meeting room in Brussels. He's always on the other side of this oval table. So I see that somebody is sitting there, but I can't really see his face. I can't see if he's on his mobile all the time or that he's really listening uh, to the discussions. And we greet each other in the corridors and that's about it. And this, for the first time, we sat down and discussed uh, issues. What happens in every capital is that if you have to negotiate with, with multiple partners, um, you have to, to make a list of your priorities. But you also have to make a list about what you can give away, the quid pro quo. Huh? So if the Dutch prime minister visits the Austrian chancellor and he says on the budget, this is, I mean, this is really one of my priorities that, you know, we're a net paying country, we don't want to pay a cent more. I mean, the Dutch are stingy and they will stay, remain, that will not change, I think. And the uh, Austrian chancellor, he will, in return for his support, he will want, um, for instance, some support on enlargement, maybe? Could be, I don't know. Um, so if enlargement is not one of the big problems for the, for the, the, the Netherlands, they could exchange. They could exchange, but that also means, suppose this happens and the Austrians start moving on enlargement because it's their backyard after all, eh? the Balkans, and it's extremely unstable nowadays. So from their point of view, um, it's you can easily understand why it's their priority. The minute the Austrians start moving on that in Brussels, the Dutch will remember, okay, we, we support this. I mean, we don't care, but, or maybe a little, but uh, it's not our priority. So we cannot openly um, contest this. So what you saw before is that many governments on issues that they didn't care about, they could be very critical and they would always be very outspoken. Um, even on that, they will have to tune down. They can't be very critical because even if it's not important for them, or they don't like it even, it is for one of their new uh, partners. So it brings everybody a little bit more uh, closer together. I think you can even see all this, um, and all this because of Brexit. Brexit put... Um, before Brexit, I think the EU, also because of all the crisis, was very much like a fish on the beach. It ended up there and it was unable to move. Some even uh, compared her to a dead horse. You know, you're pulling a dead horse, but it doesn't you know, get anywhere. Since Brexit, it is moving again. 
Nobody knows exactly where it goes, but there is some kind of movement again. And I think this is um, lots of, it's almost imperceptible because we don't know the destination. But I think many citizens feel it. Um, what you see all over Europe emerging right now, for instance, is a young generation, the Erasmus generation, organizing political parties, uh, platforms, discussing groups, debating groups, online magazines, I don't know what. There is a, a political party, a pan-European political party, which has established itself in 24 countries. They were here, apparently, in, in Oslo as well. They're also in Switzerland. Um, you have uh, something called European Moment. They're going to do big marches in Berlin soon. You have uh, a new political party in Sweden. Uh, there is a new political party in, uh, it's called Initiativit. Um, anyway, there's lots and lots and lots. And all of a sudden you see those same Europeans who were always watching television, sitting on their hands thinking, oh my God, the whole thing goes down the drain. These people are, are taking to the streets. They're waving European flags. Maybe they will not change the course of Europe, but the fact that they're out on the street, they want to make themselves heard, is changing something anyway. Um, in a way, you see the same thing in America. Remember after the uh, Parkland shooting in, in, in February? All the politicians, they were saying, ah, oh, you will never manage to change those gun laws, and you're, you're not going to do it. And these young students, some of them were 16, 17, in their small communities, they were they were so fed up with everybody telling them, ah, oh, the National Rifle Association is, you will never manage, you know, don't bother. And they thought, you know, we're young, we need to dream. We need a way forward, we need a horizon, let's go. And now they're discussing stricter gun laws in the United States. I mean, it can be done, I think. Uh, this is why you see that the Eurobarometer is, also why you see that the Eurobarometer is up and up and up, I think. Um, people are maybe not happy with the EU, but at least they're happy in the EU. Um, now, we have a little bit of, we've had a little bit of everything. Um, Norway, maybe. <laughs> uh, no, let me save a little uh, uh, now. The member states are negotiating a divorce agreement with the UK. It's still easy. Why is it still easy? Everybody's surprised that they agree about so many things. I'm not very surprised, actually, because there's not much to negotiate about. The EU is a community of law. So we're all different, and we all have different hang-ups. We all have different demands and wishes and, and traumas. Um, but the law is the same for everybody. This is why it's very difficult, after all, to be flexible with the UK. Apparently, the main negotiator in Brussels, Mr. Barnier, is not really negotiating. He is just explaining how things work <laughs> and reiterating to make them understand, look, um, we can't. We cannot. We cannot just undo European law just for you. I'm sorry. Um, but this will change, of course. Uh, so in, in a sense, it's very, it's very difficult, very easy for everybody to be, uh, relatively easy to be behind Barnier, although they have their, every, every country has its own um, worries, of course. The big test will be, I think, when this is negotiated and they start discussing a new relationship. I think because then you're in, the, in, in, in a different territory, then you're not talking about tweaking EU law, you know, for, for, for somebody who wants to leave. <laughs> um, but you're talking about a new relationship. And for instance, for instance in the field of, of fisheries, I mean, several countries are already lining up to, um, to strike out on their own. It will be much harder, I think, to keep the unity when they get to that stage of the negotiations. Um, the, uh, I was in Switzerland a couple of weeks ago. 
And it's very interesting to see how um, Switzerland uh, is sort of host hostage, you can, you can almost call it, between uh, the UK and the EU. And now I'm slowly getting to, to Norway. For instance, what you see happening, the Swiss have a different relationship with Brussels than Norway. Eh? Norway basically has one deal and it automatically uh, transposes decisions from Brussels, even things that they don't have to transpose, but it's easier, so they do it. The Swiss are more cherry pickers. They have like over 100 bilateral agreements with Brussels. Um, and they're notoriously difficult. I've lived in Switzerland too, so I've reported on many of those. Uh, they're always creating problems about money and, and, and everything. Um, and now this, it's like a fragile uh, set of bilateral accords that the Swiss have uh, with Brussels. And if one of the parties undoes one of the accords, all of them uh, are terminated automatically. So with all the Swiss referendums, um, everybody's permanently on their toes. So they're now negotiating with Brussels about how to put everything in a more solid framework. In a way, not exactly the same, but in a way like it is with Norway. So that you don't have you know, hiccups every day or twice a day. Um, and what you see now is, for instance, that the, the Dutch, uh, the, 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 the EU finds it very hard to be flexible. When you negotiate, both sides have to be a little bit flexible because otherwise you, you can't do anything. For the EU, it's very difficult to be flexible, to show some flexibility with the Swiss because of Brexit. For instance, the Swiss... Uh, Although they're not in the EU, they're participating in almost everything. They're more in the EU than, than the UK is. This is the big irony of the story, of course. Um, so the Swiss, and we are like-minded anyway. So often, when there was a meet, when there is a meeting, was a meeting in Brussels on some issue, um, they would let the Swiss in. It's like you're not a member, but you know. <laughs> We're cooperating so closely, and you're, you're joining all our programs, and, and so on, so come in. You can't decide, but at least you know what the discussion is about. If there's something you really have trouble with, you can, you know, from the outside, uh, start talking to some of us, and maybe... This was like a nice arrangement for the Swiss. Now, the Swiss are telling me that they're not allowed in anymore. Because... Of course, the EU is afraid if they do this, then the Brits will say, ha, if the Swiss are sitting there, we want to be there too. And if the Brits are sitting there, very nicely, and some Dutch people find out, or some Danes, or some Irish, they say, ha, it's very nice actually to be out of the EU. Huh? You can still join the meeting. Maybe you cannot co-decide, but you know, you shove that a little bit under the carpet, people don't have to know. So we want out too. And before you know it, this could unravel the EU. It could very well. Um, so <laughs> the Swiss are feeling a little bit um, unsettled uh, because, of, um, because of Brexit. And apparently the British are also telling them, look, um, why don't we team up together? We are both interested in the same thing, which is access to the internal market. And we both have a huge uh, financial sector. So we converge on the main issues. Why don't we team up together? Uh, this, the Swiss find it hard uh, to, to find an answer for that because they don't know where this Brexit story is going. They don't know where the EU is going. They don't know what the future relationship between um, the EU and the UK will be. So then it's very hard, as it will be for the Norwegians, to find out where your place is because the relationship between the UK and the EU will be different. So your place in it, since you're closely connected to both sides, will be different uh, too. So the Swiss are 
uh, there's a whole discussion in Switzerland now about some people are saying, let's go with the, with the British. Huh? We're in, the, in a way, we're in the same boat. They aren't, of course. Um, but they, 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 they are fed up with waiting. They're fed up with the insecurity. And they said, we can't just put the whole nation on hold and all the polit political decisions on hold until maybe after the transition period. We know in a couple of years only where this whole story goes. But, um, and apparently they have won the day for now. Uh, the other side of the argument is, uh, are we going to put the fate of our nation in the hands of a country that itself doesn't know where it's going? Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so for now, that's cool has, has won the argument. But of course, if the negotiations with the EU are going to be difficult, which they are, I think, because they always are with the Swiss. And especially now, maybe they will be tempted to try another route. Who knows? I don't know. Um, so this applies in a way. I don't know what is going to happen uh, between the EU and the UK, where they will end up. I suspect um, that they, there will be some kind of a soft Brexit because a hard Brexit will be too disruptive for everybody. And there is a sort of a learning process going on in the United Kingdom as well, because they, had, they knew actually so little about the organization that they're saying goodbye to, um, that now they have all these discussions in the national parliament on Euratom, on uh, Schengen, on lots of uh, arrangements that they're in or not even members of, but they have, to, um, they have to see how they position themselves on all these issues. There are lots of British journalists covering these issues that they previously never bothered to cover, cover in, in Brussels, but now these discussions are taking place in their own parliament and in the House of Lords, and they're all there in force, the whole press, and you get very good stories all of a sudden, instead of these debunking, you know, the European Commission is just grabbing power. Um, They're actually reporting about what Euratom is and what it means for the country. That if, if they leave uh, the EU, they have to leave Euratom as well automatically, because all that is linked. What it does to the country, can they still do radiation for can cancer patients? Apparently, no. So, um, I think in many, uh, I think they're not that stupid after all. Um, I think they will end up with a, with a soft Brexit. If there is a soft Brexit, it will be, I guess it will be relatively good for Norway. Um, there will, won't be any need for the, for the UK to join EFTA or something like that. You know, all of a sudden you will have a big country dominating EFTA entirely, uh, which would upset the Norwegians, I think. Um, what I also think is that um, there's, there is room for maneuver on uh, defense and security and foreign affairs issues. That is um, not really EU law. There, uh, there you can move much more. There you can compromise. And there we actually, on the continent, we also need uh, the UK very much, especially in this current climate um, with all kinds of security challenges and defense challenges that we haven't, haven't had in so many decades. Um, we've become pacifists after all, but the UK has not. So maybe um, they're members of NATO. There, this could be a field where, you know, while it, it, it's hard to compromise on EU law, I think on, in this field, uh, there's a lot of uncharted territory and we can actually uh, do a lot together, um, which would also be good for Norway, of course. So there are many scenarios open. Uh, I don't know which one, um, uh, which one they will choose in Brussels and in London. It's not going to be uh, very easy. But it, somehow uh, my water tells me that they, will, that they will get there without too much uh, damage. So there won't be too much damage for Norway either. 
So I think I've talked uh, uh, more than enough now. And um, I think it's time for your questions or remarks. Okay, thank you so much for a very interesting uh, talk. It was uh, interesting to, to listen to you, how you kind of have met all these people and you can, you can mm -hmm. kind of feel the trends. Um, and it's also a perspective that is not so common here in Norway. So thank you for that. Um, uh, please sing, sign up. I have two questions to start with. So while you answer those. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, the first one is, is um, you talked a lot about um, uh, kind of uh, that Brexit will uh, lead to a move towards uh, more uh, support for Europe, in a sense, in all these countries. But you, you talk mostly about the, the level of politicians and elite, and that they have to now realize that they have to educate their own people mm -hmm. in order to avoid uh, an uh, exit of their country or a similar, similar kind of process. But at the same time, I think one thing is to educate people, another thing is to kind of deliver. Uh, and for the EU to be taken seriously in the long term, uh, to not have a new kind of crisis, um, the EU has to reform itself and manage to deliver on key concerns, and that concerns, of course, unemployment, security. Uh, and these kind of issues. So that is my first question. And then the other question is more on um, it's, it's uh, the relationship to third countries, because um, you said that it might be uh, that the EU becomes tougher on, on the relationship to third countries in order to avoid uh, more exits. Um, but at the same time, you could also say that, that the EU has to have a different relationship to third countries in order to um, have more support <laughs> for the integration process, that the distinction will be more between those who support the integration process, like actually Norway does in many ways without being a member, and those who do not support the integration process or are critical and, and uh, maybe not so constructive, but inside the EU, because you have countries in the EU that actually uh, could be considered that difficult members. Still, mm -hmm. <laughs> still after after yeah. Brexit. <laughs> yeah. So, so I wonder with these two questions. So, my questions, and then I, I'll uh, I'll let you start with that, and then uh, then open up for for others. Yeah, uh, you're totally right. Of course, they have to deliver, and I think this is something that they're all very much aware of. Um, delivering, but part of the delivery is also that you don't beat about beat around the bush about your own. Uh, decisions in Brussels. You know, governments always, um, in, in Brussels, you can't take any decision without uh, member states agreeing to it. Sometimes it's three quarters, sometimes it's unanimity, it, it changes a little bit. Um, but often governments, they just pretend it is Brussels deciding something like that, um, as if they had not been there and, and had been negotiating there for many years. I think um, most of the citizens don't even know that, you know, when they rally against uh, European institutions. Um, so I think the, the, the risk, this is very much, it's not just educating the people, because this presupposes that, you know, if you tell people a better story, they will change their minds. I mean, people are not stupid. This is not what it's about. It's about governments assuming their responsibility. That's what I meant. Uh, and of course, part of that responsibility is that they have to deliver, but they also have to change. Uh, they ha they will have to change the the way they talk about what they want to deliver. Um, so it goes hand in hand, I think. Yeah. Your second question. I'm not sure I understand it very well. So it's more the relationship um, to third countries, because you 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 mentioned that the EU might be tougher with third countries, and of course uh, that as a result of Brexit. Mm -hmm. But one could also imagine that there are so so much. I mean, this goes very well together with your argument that the you, all European countries and member states go closer together and more to the core and getting more European. Yes. But we see now that the, this is not the case. I mean, you have Hungary, you have Poland, you have a lot of countries that are quite skeptical about where the EU is going still. So you could see that for, in order for, for Germany and France to, to, to succeed in their integration, 
endeavor that they actually need support for th from third countries that are in support of this process. And, and this is, of course, Norway is a very particular case in that sense because uh, we are very much supporting, uh, at least uh, on a political level, <laughs> the, uh, the process in the EU. Even Nor Norway has a policy towards the, the neighborhood, the, EU, the EU's neighborhood which is very much in line with, uh, with the EU, and we actually support and help these countries with, uh, with kind of managing to, to, mm -hmm. um, to comply with the criteria of EU membership. And even though we want to stay out, so it's a bit uh, paradoxical. Yes. So that's, that's why I, I, maybe you could see this trend as well. So, so not this kind of member, non-member, but more kind of pro-integration as such. Or mm -hmm. But you stay out. And that's yeah. probably good, because if half of the people of Norway don't want to join, or even more, then by all means you should stay out and keep as close as you, as you possibly can. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I don't see that there will be a change there. It's of course, sometimes, you, you know, I travel to Poland and then I travel to Switzerland, and it's very strange to see that actually the Poles are... are uh, yeah, they're they're drifting off in my in my. Uh, I'm sorry to say, <laughs> um, they're they're drifting off in a in a in a juridical way, um, and at the same time you go to Switzerland and they're they're very close to to EU law over there. Huh? Um, yeah, this can sometimes seem as a as a contradiction, but you know, we have to we all have to live with contradictions. I mean, politics is full of contradictions. Mm -hmm. So I don't see actually how we. I think the basic uh, the basic, in a way, Brexit. Before Brexit, we could. I mean, what we offered the UK before Brexit. Actually, some lawyers, some uh, EU lawyers, they said, um, or specialists in EU law, they said it would not survive uh, scrutiny by the European Court of Justice. Um, but still, the politicians tried. But now, after Brexit, they cannot afford to do this anymore. Because then... Um, countries will... There, will, there may be other exits. And if, in a way, we've, we formulate it's like a new mantra in a way we're saying goodbye the Brits are saying goodbye to us rather um, so we have to find a, a common position in our talks with them that common position is largely made up of laws the laws that we have and in a way, this becomes also by reiterating those laws and the fact that we, we cannot just, you know, we have uh, a few pillars underneath that we cannot just undo one of those pillars because a leaving country wants, wants um, a, a nice deal. I mean, we can all understand that. The, um, I think the pillar becomes even more solid. Some people even say that the whole story of values will be more and more important. And I, I, I actually see a point there. And this is very nice for Norway because we share, largely share most of the values, I think. Um, but I think the EU is really very hurt. After 10 years of crisis, after, um, after Brexit, because it hurt, um, and I think they want to close ranks now. And when you close ranks, you not only reiterate the laws, the rules that you have in common. I mean, we're all totally different. Bulgaria is not the same as Ireland. And Poland has maybe not so much in common with Portugal. But still, we're in the same club. So we need the rules. So that's first, the reiteration of the rules. Second, reiteration, I think, of what beyond the rules binds us together which is values. So all of a sudden, this is why you hear uh, politicians in several countries where you expect it the least are talking about values. We have ignored the problems, uh, the mounting problems between Brussels and Poland and Hungary. I mean, I come often, often in, 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 in Vienna still. There are things happening there. It goes very fast too. Um, 
And of course, you have to um, not hit, uh, hit each other on the head. But there is, I think, um, there comes a point um, where you have to act. And I think for a long time, because of the crisis and because of uh, crisis, uh, multiple crises, because of Brexit, we have not paid a lot of attention to that. I mean, you can't just do everything at the same time. Now we're closing ranks and we are reformulating who we are and what binds us together. So I think um, the value story um, will be more and more important. I think so. Well, thank you so much for coming and thanks to all of you. Thanks.